my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. You're sitting atop the legendary Group M as CEO. Which of the jobs you've had best prepared you for this job? Oh, probably shoveling manure when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was 12 years old. <laughs> I served you well for a lot of jobs. It has. I mean, I'm, I'm only half being sarcastic. I mean, I think you've got to get in. These are not glamorous jobs. At least they shouldn't be. If, it, if you're running a company like this and you feel like your job is glamorous, then you're probably not doing the right things. I love rolling my sleeves up, getting in there and doing the hard things. And sometimes that is akin to shoveling, but that's just what you've got to do. Bob Pittman and welcome to Math and Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. We explore the analytical and creative side of marketing and our guests cover the spectrum from anyone who uses or touches marketing to people who claim it in their job title. Today's guest is Tim Castry, who has a fascinating story and actually split his career between the U.S. and his native Australia. You'll hear that accent in a minute. Tim is the relatively new North America CEO of Group M, the WPP parent company that owns and operates some of the best-known names in advertising, Mindshare, Mediacom, Wavemaker, Essence, and Zaxxas. 
Tim was born in Melbourne, Australia, traded shoveling manure for riding lessons at age 12. Is that right? That's right. That's probably the first indication of his incredible deal-making skills. <laughs> he did not go to college. Instead, he started as an advertising cadet, whatever the hell that is, and we're going to yeah. explore that soon. He went on to an amazing career in advertising that had him ping-ponging between the U.S. and Australia across a wide range of jobs and agencies. CEO Leo Burnett in Sydney from George Patterson Partners, COO of MediaVest in the U.S., Managing Director of Videology, CEO of MEC, CEO of Wave Runner, all that. And he's only, what, 25 years old? 25 plus 23. <laughs> <laughs> what a career. And we want to dig into it, and I'm dying to know about that advertising cadet deal. But first, we want to get you in 60 seconds. So just give us the first thing that comes to your mind. Cats or dogs? Dogs, hands down. Puzzles or board games? Puzzles. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Kangaroos or koalas? Kangaroos. Oceans or lakes? Oceans. New York or Sydney? New York. Melbourne or Sydney? Melbourne. Sunrise or sunsets? Sunrise. Ooh. Libraries or museums? Uh, museums. Riding horses or doing yoga? Yoga now. Smartest person you know? Yeah, I work with this guy named Evan Hanlon at Group M. I think he got a 1600 on his SATs, and he now is a chief strategy officer. It sounds like the right guy for the chief strategy <laughs> he officer. Is. Childhood hero? Batman. First job? Delivering newspapers. Craziest thing you did for love? Craziest thing I did for love? Oh, boy. What have I done for love? I've done a lot for love. I don't think they're crazy. They're mostly desperate, I think, more than crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll give you a pass on that one. Historical idol? Probably Jesus. Proudest career achievement? Getting my first job. Proudest personal achievement? Choosing my wife. Quote to live by? Life's too short. Worst fashion trend you've participated in? Oh, uh, acid wash jeans were pretty tragic. They're coming back. They're I know they're back. coming back. Hang on to it. We them. all get to make our own mistakes, one generation to the next. What would be the title of your memoir? Fooled them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's jump into it. You had decided on a career in advertising it, as I understand it, age 15. Mm. You, you did a paper or a project in school, and that set you on this path. What on earth was that project? It was a one-day event where they brought in three or four business leaders. They organized a competition where we had to launch a business. We got put into teams, and I was the leader of our team. We decided we were going to import these T-shirts from Hong Kong. We had to source them and market them in our little high school business plan, and I just loved it. One of those business leaders that was in, he worked for Dun & Bradstreet. And he said, come in and I'll show you around now. So I remember taking the train into Melbourne. It was an hour away on the train. And I spent a day with him. And I got home that night and said to my mom, I'm going to work in marketing or advertising. And it just, it stuck. Wow. it's mm. a great story. So you started as the advertising cadet. What is an advertising cadet? I think I was the first and only ever advertising cadet. This wasn't a long line of cadetships, <laughs> but it was basically a way to give a break to a high school kid who was in a family situation where he couldn't afford to go to college. Mum had said, look, you need to go out to work for a few years. That's what the family needs. So I was working in a supermarket after school. I thought the girl who worked in the deli was kind of cute, and I was showing off to her juggling watermelons in the supermarket. Two watermelons, not three. And this area manager came around, and she said, what the hell are you doing? And get back to work. And then about an hour later, I was on my lunch break, and she came and talked to me, and she said, oh, sorry, I was so hard on you. I said, no, no problem. I shouldn't have been juggling watermelons. And we got talking, and we hit it off. Her name was Margaret Kim. And she said, well, you're about to graduate high school. What are you doing? I said, I don't know. And I explained my situation, how I needed to go out and work. And she said, what do you want to do? I said, I really want to work in marketing and advertising. And she said, well, you know, we have an advertising department here at Safeway. Why don't I make some phone calls and see if there's anything they could do for you? 
lo and behold, he called me back three days later and said, you know what, they've just decided to launch this first ever cadetship program and why don't you apply for that and I'll see if I can help you. And sure enough, I applied and I was given this cadetship, which was basically working in the internal advertising department of Safeway Supermarkets and loved it. About a year into it, the internal advertising department got absorbed into Leo Burnett. So I moved from Safeway into Leo Burnett about a year after I'd started which is a whole other story. Do you want to hear that? Yes, I do. I do want to hear that. So I was in this cadetship and they were waiting to give the contract to Leo Burnett. A bunch of folks they took into the agency, a bunch they let go and moved into other departments. And I was the last person they hadn't resolved. My story is basically a long litany of people who gave me breaks. And, and there was a guy who ran advertising. His name was John Syme. And John was saying to the CEO of Leo Burnett, you've got to take this guy, Tim. He's fantastic. He's a young guy. And they said, look, we, just, we don't know what to do with an advertising cadet. And so we don't need him. John was adamant about it. And they went back and forth on this for weeks while they were negotiating the contract. It got to the final day where John was about to sign the contract to give them the account. It was still unresolved. And he said, look, I'm not signing until you give Tim a job. And he held the pen and he sat and waited. It took him about 90 seconds after that. He said, fine, fine. We'll give the kid a job. And then he signed the contract. And that's how I... And what was, what was their job? Well, they basically brought me in in a similar capacity in Leo Burnett. So they said, we'll take him on for two years and we'll move him around to all the various departments, from production to creative to account management and media. They didn't have programs like that at the time, but my boss there was still one of my best friends to this day, a woman named Melinda Gertz. She went to Northwestern and they transferred to the Melbourne office of Leo Burnett from the Chicago office. Melinda just said, well, I'll take him and I'll redesign what we used to do at Leo Burnett in Chicago. I'll just make a little training program for one. And so that was where they designed this kind of program to put me around in each of the departments and learn the ropes of advertising. Well, you did really well. So you must have impressed somebody. What did you do in that advertising cadet job that so impressed them that you began to move up in the world? I had a real work ethic. When you grow up in a working poor family, I mean, a lot of people who have that experience, they burn, you know, they really burn with ambition and a drive. And I had that as well. You know, a lot of fuel from my childhood circumstances really pushed me forward. So I'd say it was a real combination of work ethic. God gifted me with a good brain. The gray matters always work pretty well. And also a real willingness to take risks and put myself out there. I'd be constantly making proposals and recommendations that were far beyond my pay grade far beyond what I knew, but I really tried hard to make a difference and to have an impact. And I think they noticed that. Did growing up in those circumstances really drive you into your success? It absolutely did. For the first 10 or 15 years of my career, and also because I hadn't gone to university, a ton of insecurity that came with that. If you'd asked a lot of people who knew me at that time, if I was in any way an insecure person, they would be stunned to learn how deeply insecure I was. You skipped college. That bought you four years earlier starting your career. Did that turn out to be a competitive advantage to be there before your peers were there? It turned out to be an advantage in the end, yes. I think it wouldn't happen today. You know, 1988, I graduated high school, and the idea that you would get into a white-collar job without university was already a pretty far-fetched idea. Because Australia is such a small market, Melbourne was such a small market, you had to do so much. So I would work across departments on dozens and dozens of ad campaigns. When I first moved to the US, I would work for a year and a half on one television ad for SpaghettiOs. How do you work 18 months on trying to make one SpaghettiOs television ad? I don't know. but the Must have been a great one. <laughs> well, arguable. But the year before, I'd done 30. There was a lot of volume, and I think a lot of that volume helped me to learn the ropes pretty quickly. Do you find in the U.S. that it meant less that you hadn't gone to college? I uh, know. I feel it meant more. I was quite insecure about it for a while. And it was really only in my middle 30s that I really wrestled the insecurity to the mat. 
and really started to find that deep sense of confidence and to get a greater sense of permanence. Like I was always worried, you know, that someone was going to take it away. They'd find out where I was from and find out how I'd gotten here and take it all away. And it was only in my mid-30s that I really transcended that. So when you look at someone today and they didn't go to college, do you go, wow, I need to give them a chance, they're going to work harder? Or do you say you should go to college? I have a very strong ethic around education and I'm quite adamant that my kids are going to go to college. Statistically, you see where the outcomes are. I think the real challenge we're dealing with at the moment is the amount of debt that kids are coming out of school with, and it's really questionable how valuable it is. So when I think about my own kids, I want them to go to college, and I opened their 529s on the day before each of them were born. That's been the ethic I've had around it. But when I think about Group M and what we're doing, we are increasingly looking at alternative ways to get kids into jobs that don't require four-year degrees. There's a lot that happens in the world of advertising and media that shouldn't require a four-year degree and certainly no point in forcing kids and saddling kids with all of that debt in order to get there. So as we think about increasing the diversity at Group M, how we think about those kind of entry-level roles is a big part of we think how we're going to solve the longer-term diversity challenges we're having in the industry. Well, I've been around a long time and there's a big club of us who didn't finish college, some that didn't go to college. My great boss and mentor at Warner Communications, Steve Ross, I think he went for two weeks. Mm. <laughs> uh, and, and there was once a job posting that came down and said, college degree required for some very low-level jobs. So I call up the HR department, just tweak them a little bit, and go, well, you know, our chairman, CEO, didn't go to college here. He's saying he's not qualified to do this job. So they sent it back and said, college degree preferred. <laughs> so let's go back to Australia a little bit. Mm. Talk about your childhood. You said you really couldn't afford to go to college, needed to go to work. What was the family life like, and how did that shape you? I'm from a working poor family. My dad was a school teacher and school principal and my mum was a stay-at-home mum and we had five kids on a teacher's salary. We lived in rural Australia at that point. It was always pretty uh, precarious. Then when dad left the family home at 12, and really he left, I mean, he was gone, you know, and mum had never worked a day in her life. So she was pretty much left to figure out how to provide for five kids. It was a very challenging time. We really were living in the margins financially. But at the same time, just an incredible spirit and sense of love that filled the home. It was very fun-filled and love-filled home. And so that, more than the economic circumstances, is what shaped who I am as a person. You grew up in a loving but tough childhood. What lessons do you repeat to your kids about that? The main thesis of the way we parent is having love and compassion for everybody. They're certainly showing that at seven and nine years old, they blow me away sometimes. Do you go back to Australia a lot? Does the family go back? Do they feel rooted or just you rooted there? No, my kids, are, they're very American. I mean, they sound like they're from Brooklyn. They've got really thick little New York accents, but they love being half Australian. And so they're really connected to that part of their identity. Both of my parents have passed away. So a lot of the impetus to go back every year or twice a year has gone away. So we go back a bit less frequently these days, but the kids certainly love getting back there and they certainly identify with the part of them that's Australian. So let's jump back to advertising. You started as the advertising cadet. Ever think you'd be at a CEO job like this? I wear my ambition pretty lightly. It's more of this internal drive. I guess because where I started in Melbourne, it was such a small place. So by 23, 24, I was running a bunch of accounts. The guy who ran it, you know, he was only 28 or 29 running the operation. So at that point, the gap between me and the top didn't seem that large. So I was always kind of set on being a CEO. And then I decided to get to the US because I just thought Australia's a pretty small pond. So I thought I'd come here. How was it different than you had imagined it as a kid? I mean, this is marketing. It was more fun and less corporate than I thought it would be. Really? Uh, maybe because I didn't really know. So I just had this association with people in business, you know, wearing ties and being all formal, even in marketing and advertising. I had this idea that it was going to be quite stiff and formal. 
in many ways that appealed to me. I was always more drawn to the establishment than being anti-establishment. And maybe that's because of where I grew up. I always thought there was this club that I was trying to get to. So I was actually more Navy than pirate in my sensibilities growing up. So I thought when I got there, I'd be, I'd be joining this club. And I was quite pleasantly surprised to see how fun and spirited and, and it was a fun and club. corporate it was. Right. What lessons did you learn about marketing from that early part of your career that still stick with you today and are sort of a foundational belief you have? At the heart of it, this is all about making emotional connections with people. And that hasn't changed, even with everything we can do today with the power of all of our data and technology and targeting tools and this and this. And at the end of the day, it's about moving people. And the only way to do that is at the level of emotional engagement. You have a reputation of being a change agent, that you see things a different way. You think that comes from the fact that you were in this job, jack of all trades, where you could do everything and you could see things in a very fluid way, and that if you had jumped into a big advertising agency and been put in a very specific job, you would not have that ability, or do you think that's an innate ability you have? Well, I think it was probably born out of my early drive in my career in the sense that, to me, stasis felt like going backwards. But I also had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it and a healthy kind of disrespect for it as well. It really came from this kind of inner drive to constantly be moving forward, evolving and changing. You went back and forth, Australia, US, then you went back to Australia, came back to the US. Why'd you go back to Australia? I got engaged and um, my wife, who's much smarter than I am, on the night I asked her to marry me, I said, will you marry me, Kristen? And she said, absolutely, if we live in America. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, wow. I'm talking about a high leverage moment. She knew it was coming and she was ready for me and she had me over a barrel. So really, the reason we went back to Australia was because I realized it was going to be my last chance to live there. And my parents were getting elderly. My brother, who passed away from AIDS, he was quite sick at the time. And I just thought, here's the window of time where I can really go and reconnect with family. So we made the deal that we'd go live in Australia for three years and then come back to New York to start our family. Tim, there's so much more I want to get into, from your management style to how you convinced all of Australia to turn off their lights for an hour. But before we get into any of that, let's take a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be. To be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time, with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here today with Tim Castry. Looking at your career and listening to folks talk about you, the big question is, what are you? Count person, a creative, a technologist, a quant, a business person? How do you think of yourself? I'm a client guy. Everything else for me, all that other stuff that I've learned and done is really about increasing my ability to help clients solve their business problems with the tools that we have in at WPP and at Group M. But the first door I walk through or the way I identify myself is first and foremost as a client person. Well, you know you've got a great reputation and the first time I heard about you, you were sort of this spectacular client person. But all this other stuff you've done, did it make you a different client person than they had seen from other places? All that other experience gave me kind of more utility. So I didn't have to go to everybody to help understand clients how to solve problems. I'd still bring in specialists and experts, but I knew a lot more directly myself about a lot of parts of the business. So that was really helpful. The other thing that's helped me here is the culture of Australian business, the directness, the way I've run my career. I'm trying to be 80% Australian. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a strength in, I think, the egalitarian style of Australia, which has really helped me here, but only to 80%. 2006, you became CEO of Leo Burnett in Sydney. The agency was named Australia's Agency of the Year. Is that heady stuff? I mean, here's somebody who didn't go to college, started shoveling manure, and now you're the CEO of Leo Burnett and you've recognized as the agency of the year. Wow, it was awesome because it was my first CEO job and it was also the company where I started. You know, the company where Melinda gave me that little training program and I was back, you know, still working with Melinda. It was a very, very proud moment for me, yeah. 
did it change your view of you? It didn't change my idea of me, but it was the time when I worked most on my mindset and thinking around my right to be in the leadership job. I was starting to realise that this is legit. I've earned this. And it's not that somebody's going to wake up tomorrow and figure out that I fooled them and I got here, but I really deserve to be here. The doors must have opened at that time too. Agency of the Year by goes, who is this guy? How old were you at the time? Early 30s, maybe 33. Did any doors open or surprises as to what opportunities came your way as a result of that? Not directly. I have this MO too. I don't I don't answer the phone when it rings. When I commit to a job, I say, I'm going to do this for three years and I'm going to do it for three years and I'm not going to think about anything else. And then maybe at two and a half years, I'll think, is this working for me? And if it's still working for me, I really recommit to the next three years. Talk about creativity in this period and at Leo Burnett. Got an example? The best campaign I've ever worked on. One of the reasons I moved to media was after we'd made this campaign, I thought, well, what the hell's left? This was a <laughs> pinnacle moment. And that was the formation of a campaign called Earth Hour. The World Wildlife Fund came to Leo Burnett and said, we want a campaign about climate change. The chairman at the time, a great man named Nigel Marsh, who's become a dear friend, he said, well, let's not make you some ads. Let's make a movement. Let's convince everybody in Sydney to turn off their lights for an hour and make a symbolic gesture. So this idea of Earth Hour was born. But not only did Nigel do that, he worked with the WWF and he took it to the Sydney Morning Herald with the editorial desk and said, look, if we launch this, will you get behind it from an editorial standpoint? Because we want to convince everybody in Sydney to turn out their lights. Everybody, this started thinking like this is an impossible thing. But then by the time we got thousands of businesses, millions of people, we saw the central business district of Sydney go dark. And it was such a powerful symbol and statement. And the earned media and everything that came off of that was phenomenal. And then it expanded. So Earth Hour is still going. And at last count, about 7,000 cities around the world take part in Earth Hour every year. It's the single biggest movement of its kind that has ever been created. And it was really about our agency, the Sydney Morning Herald and the World Wildlife Fund coming together and flipping the brief on its head and say, let's do this a little bit differently. Hundreds of millions, perhaps you know, more than a billion people around the world have been influenced by that campaign since it launched out of our little old office of Leo Burnett, Sydney, 10 or 12 years ago. Wow. Congratulations. Mm. So what was your first real management job then? When I came to the US, my first job working at Foot Cone and Belding as an account director, it was more formal and I had a team and there were kind of set ways of working. I had to fit into a bit more of a structure. What was your management style? Equal parts cheerleader and tough taskmaster. So I've always tried to give a lot of support for the people that have worked with me and around me, but I also have really high expectations of them as well, as I do of myself. It's not easy to be my boss either, you know. I'm, <laughs> I have high expectations of my boss and I have high expectations of myself and I have high expectations of the people that work for me. I always try and do that with a lot of love and compassion and fun. But at the end of the day, the standards won't move, you know, they're fixed. There are a lot of people probably listening today who are new managers. What do you wish somebody had told you when you stepped in that job? Managing yourself is the most important thing. It's more important than how you manage other people. And I think a lot of people come into management jobs and they think like the field general is how they manage the troops, but it's actually more than anything, it's the role modeling and the behaviors and expectations you have of yourself that I think are the most important and influential. Management is 70% how you manage yourself, your focus, and 30% how you manage others. What I really want is to encourage the people that I manage to also manage themselves very effectively and have high standards for themselves. And if everybody operates that way, then collectively the company will keep doing better. You're known among people who know you well for being calm and handling stress well. Is that related to yoga? Yoga helps, yeah. And uh, having a great wife um, and partner at home, you know. I do stay pretty calm and then I do my freaking out when I close the door at night. <laughs> 
<laughs> how often's that? Not too often. Not too often. <laughs> yoga, yoga certainly helps a lot. So how does that fit in your management style? I try and keep people calm and help them to reframe things when they're in a crisis or having an emergency. I help them to rethink and reframe it. Let's not talk about what's happened to get us to this point. I hate the blame culture that exists in business. Let's just think about the situation we're in and what's the best course of action to take from here. There's a great sense of urgency, sometimes emergency and crisis that can get generated in companies every single day. We also work in a service business where clients have high expectations of us and can be very, very demanding. So I actually find it's not about these big moments. It's actually about how do we stay calm and focused on what's next in the day-to-day based on the dozens and hundreds of things that get thrown at us. Talk a second about how you think about mistakes. How do you think about risk, dissent? My job is really to define the problem clearly and what we're trying to accomplish and then bring the right team together to solve that problem and empower them to get it wrong. And it's not that I don't have answers. Sometimes I know what the answer is going to be or needs to be, but the way you build consensus and alignment around that, there's a quote one of my coaches told me once, which is people will tolerate your conclusions, but they'll only act on their own conclusions. So how do we lead a team to really get them to draw the right set of conclusions that will enable them to act and move more quickly to solve the various challenges and opportunities that we have? Really, that's what I'm trying to do is create that setting for success where teams can come together, collaborate and solve problems that are going to help move the company forward. I've also found as I've gotten more senior in my career, I tend to get more and more and more of the problems coming to me that others don't know what to do with or can't solve. So by definition, my job has become a problem-solving job because if it's easy, it doesn't get to me. It's solved before it reaches me. Yeah, that's one of the uh, surprises, I think, for people who step into the CEO job is nothing's fun. It's problems. So let's fast forward a bit to your COO days at MediaVest US. Uh, you had huge clients, Honda, Mondelez, Coke, Microsoft, Sprint. What did you learn from them? They were great, great companies. I mean, I learned something different from all of them. You know, Laura Desmond, right? I worked oh, with, of course, you know, Laura. I mean, Laura Legendary. Was a, Laura was amazing. What I learned from Laura about really how to manage these large clients with complex stakeholder environments and how to really get aligned with them and how to move them forward. I mean, each of them, the context was slightly different, but what I loved about all those clients was they were all sophisticated. They all had a lot of ambition and it was all about how do we partner more closely together to help these clients get where they're going to reach their objectives and how do we align the agency around that? Laura was really the master of thinking in those terms. How, how, what is the secret of that? It's quite simple, but it's really about understanding the higher order needs, benefits and strategic priorities of those companies. How do we link what we're trying to accomplish through the lens of media back into those higher order strategic needs and objectives that exist in the company more broadly. And that sounds easy. It's sometimes hard to do, but that's really the art of bringing really good partnership and alignment to these big client companies. I know this puts you in a difficult position, but are there two or three CMOs that you've worked with that just really stand out as changing your life or your view or learning something from them? There's two. Uh, One's from Australia and one from the US. The CMO of Heinz in Australia he became a great friend and he was the person I'd go to for advice. He was an amazing CMO. And then I loved Chris Capicella at Microsoft. Microsoft is a company that really got under my skin. I'm still very, very passionate about that business to this day. And a lot of that was to do with my time working on Microsoft and engaging with Chris Capicella and the whole marketing team there. I thought they were fantastic. 2014, you veer off to go to Videology, a video ad tech platform, sort of a departure from your career. Why and how? The impetus for it was that when I was COO of MediaVest, I was technically in charge of our programmatic offering and services, and I didn't know shit about it. I didn't know anything. This we saw as being the future, and I thought, I have no right 
to be leading this part of our business at the moment. We had great people in it, but I felt like what was going on in the world of technology and data was going to bring about such tectonic change that I needed to go into it to really learn it. And that was really what precipitated the decision to leave agencies for a while and go and work at Videology is I wanted to work in a product company where that's all they did every day and understand it from the level of not just the services, but really the technology and the products around that. So going to work in a technology and product company was really my MBA in ad tech. And to this day, it was the equal best decision I ever made. The first was making the move from creative to media. And then the second was dipping out of media for a while to go and learn the ad tech space deeply. It was a great How choice. much did you learn about the technology? Was it more product or was it more technology or both? I learned a lot about both. I also learned about how product companies operate different from service companies. When you've got to scale a platform and make that work for thousands of end users, that's very different than delivering service to clients. In our business now, what a media agency looks like today needs to operate a lot more like a product company and not just a service company. So it was a very, very helpful experience. People forget sometimes to give enough credit to the agencies and how much change they've absorbed, but the rate of change in the next 10 years needs to pick up. If we only change at the rate we did in the last five, we'll be going backwards. A lot of managers, your friends, my friends, are talking about the silos How do you rethink an organization that's not based on silos? The challenge that I think a lot of companies have had, and I think we've fallen into this mistake as well at Group M in the past, is thinking that it's a structural solution to our siloed problems because that's the way it looks on an org chart. It looks like silos, P&Ls, individual leadership. And I do think the structural work is important. But there are six, seven, eight, nine, ten other levers that you've got to pull in order to break down those internal silos. The way we think about incentives, the way we build culture, the types of leaders we choose, the values we have as a company. Structure's really the bricks, but what's the mortar that's gonna hold that all together and help you to, to be more cohesive as a company? And sometimes if I've got a working group or a team, I give them a challenge. I say, go help us solve this problem and come back to me with some recommendations. Very often part of that brief will be, you have to think about every other lever you wanna pull to fix this problem before you give me a structural solution. We'll do structure last. So in many ways, I kind of take that away to force them to think more deeply about how are we going to drive some change here that isn't just about shifting stuff around on the org chart. Do you find people in the organization are looking for the new organization or are they afraid of the change that it might bring to them? Probably both. And it might depend on where you are generationally. And how much as an individual in your career, the silos or power structures might serve the manager individually. But I'd say on the whole, people inside Group M are hungering for us to continue to evolve. There is so much intelligence and talent in the company and such a desire for us to pick up the rate of change that I'm pushing on a lot of open doors. And that's been probably the biggest surprise coming into my job is the volume of people inside Group M that are excited to keep reinventing our company so we can be more relevant in the future. You really care about clients, known for that, and you care about your clients' brands as much as they do. What are the dangers today to brands that we didn't have, and how are you addressing that? I think the biggest danger to brands is in a world where there's now infinite shelves, you know, there's no constraints in terms of the store shelf anymore, and an infinite number of ways to connect with them, I think it's very, very easy for disruptors to come in and get their business up to a certain size. And that's where a lot of these DTC businesses are coming in and really reinventing these kind of value propositions and taking a slice off a traditional big client base. I think it's very hard for these DTC companies to come in and break through to the scale that a lot of our clients are operating at, but it's not as hard to get to 30, 50, 100, 150, 200 million dollars of sales. And when that happens across a number of fronts, 
you know, that's really starting to take a slice off a lot of the business that our traditional clients have had. And so I think it's the aggregation of a lot of these DTC competitors that are the biggest threat to brands. I look at Mark Pritchard, who I'm a big fan of, and look at the successes he's had recently, Mm. where he really rethought the marketing process and media and partners and looked for more efficiencies and effectiveness. And I think he just had his third or fourth quarter of record results. Do you think that's a model others are looking at? Mark has been a pioneer, and I think he was the first serious big CMO leader to use his pulpit to call bullshit on a lot of the received wisdom that had started to grow up around digital marketing and the digital ecosystem. He was the first to say, you know, I'm not sure that watching this digital video ad with the sound off for a nanosecond of three pixels in view is really going to help move the needle on my business. So he started to take a much more balanced view in terms of the relationship between traditional media and new media. Obviously, digital marketing is really important, but you know, it's not the panacea to everything. And we still need scale. We still need to engage with people emotionally. We're a big business, so we need a law of large numbers. We can't target our way through every business problem and challenge that we've got. And some of these ad products that exist in the digital ecosystem aren't as good as some of the traditional ones. There was a while where there was a lot of pressure on marketers to feel and look more digital. There was a little bit of a sense that, hang on, if I'm recommending radio and out of home and other more traditional medias and not as much of this new digital stuff, am I going to look like a dinosaur? And I think that sometimes led a lot of marketers to overreach into new things before they really understood the impact they could have at scale. So Mark has been a great leader in that way. In our radio business, we love it because he went back and discovered radio and billboards and things like that as well. Talk to me a little bit about the overall decline in TV because that used to be the foundation of the reach of any campaign and now it doesn't have that same reach. How do you think that changes the world of Right, TV? I mean, traditional broadcast media is getting older. Video is very much alive, but there's been a lot of fragmentation from traditional television into a multitude of IP addressable and over-the-top places. I mean, much of it doesn't carry ads. Right. And then the bits that do haven't had a measurement standard around them and targeting standards around them so we can accrue audiences in those places with the same level of predictability and measurement that we have had in traditional television. And I think it's forcing us to reevaluate the concept of video reach having primacy alone. Video was the top of the stack because it represented sight, sound and motion. But as I say, if that's now a digital video with the sound off for a fraction of a second, we know that's not equivalent to a 30-second television ad. So that's opened the door for us to really rethink how we do reach planning, not just for television or video first, and then we add on the other channels later. But let's really understand the impact and role that all channels can play across our display, audio, and video formats, and then how do we want to rebuild plans to maximize the combination of reach and engagement that we know we need to move the needle. Privacy and data double-edged swords. How are you thinking about it for your clients? These will be the defining issue for the next 10 years, and it's a defining issue now. So we are you know, playing our role in the industry to really try and lead the way when it comes to brand safety, when it comes to viewability and performance standards, when it comes to driving consistent measurement. These things are really important. The biggest client response we're seeing to the threat and the challenges around your potential privacy regulation is the importance of direct customer relationships and first-party data. There's not a marketer out there that is not looking to build more direct customer relationships to buy DTC assets and to have that direct permission and pipe into their customer bases so they can really both market directly without that mediation, but then also to have a rich data set that they can use to optimize the performance of a lot of other work they're doing across channels. Let's talk about data. Is it the new table stakes and are you expecting every media partner to bring those capabilities? 
It's absolutely table stakes and it's important that the agencies, the clients themselves and the media owners uh, are all making the investments that they need to make to set us up for a world of audience-driven optimization and audience-driven targeting and getting beyond this age demo tradition that has you know, really drove media for the first 100 years of its existence. So let's change subjects a minute. You're committed to making the world better. You're a co-founder, you and your wife actively involved in a place at the table. Tell us a little bit about the mission and a little bit of history of how that got going and the impact. You know, A Place at the Table was the name of a movie that some friends of yours developed. Tom Colicchio was the executive producer and Laurie Silverbush was the director of that film. I saw that film and at the same time I'd been you know, talking to Kristen and thinking about, I do need to start to use my relationships and talents to help. We made the decision to focus on hunger because that was a big part of my childhood was insecurity around food and poverty in general. I was discussing this, another total coincidence, my life is full of them, with I was lifting weights with a personal trainer one morning. I was describing to Jessie this revelation I'd had, and she said, oh, well, Laurie's a good friend of mine. Let me connect you with Laurie. Just total coincidence, she happened to make that movie. And so Jessie connected me with Laurie, and we had lunch one day. I said, look, I loved your movie. What you've done with the movie is really persuasive. The problem is it's a documentary. And so the people who see it will already be moved by the issue, and not many people will see it anyway. So why don't we take the concepts and the themes you've built into the movie and then think like a marketer and package those themes up for more mass consumption so we can start to move hearts and minds around the issue of hunger. And that's really where A Place at the Table was born. It was the idea of taking the themes and concepts in the movie and turn it into an ongoing campaign and marketing program aimed at changing the way people think about the hunger issue in America. Talk to me about the progress and how you measure the progress. We've made really good progress. This is a small organization. We don't raise very much money. We think there's so much great work happening in the establishment that exists around anti-poverty and anti-hunger organizations. What we're trying to do is to help fuel them to communicate more effectively. And so the biggest thing we've been doing in the last 12 months is doing a lot of work with an organization called Frameworks, which is really teaching us how to talk about hunger that motivates and moves people away from the stereotypes and into a different mindset around what solutions And the stereotypes like. are what? The stereotypes are that you need to solve it with charity. People need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They've done it to themselves. There's not a lot of empathy around the issue. And so we're trying to help people understand that there are structural and systemic things that are driving the issue of hunger. Such as? Such as the gap between rich and poor, the way we think about wages and minimum wage, the lack of equal access to opportunity that's really now determined by where you're born, the colour of your skin, other things like that, systemic barriers. The number of people who are hungry where there's a working parent in the household. This is not about unemployment. There's a lot of hunger in working homes. And so helping people understand the full nature and dimension of the problem has been the first step, and then also helping people to understand how do we talk about this issue differently so they don't default to these unconscious stereotypes that they have about hungry people, which can get in the way of creating the empathy that they need to have for people who are hungry that will ultimately move them to more action. Well, congratulations on the work there. I know it's rewarding, but also impressive. You were once quoted as saying, I can shear you a sheep or mm. cook you a pretty good meal. Does that sum you up? <laughs> well, there's, there's certainly two truths. I can cook you a good meal and I can shear a sheep, yeah. Any other hobbies or passions? Yoga is a big passion. And really, I'm just so focused on my family at the moment. Honestly, there's nothing I could imagine I want to do more than spend an afternoon together as a family. You're a smart man and a lucky man. Let's end with math and magic where we began. From Australia to the U.S. and all the international work you've done. You've seen great folks, the analytical ones, mm. 
and the creative ones and everybody in between. All the people you've seen, who's the best mathematician you know? That analytical type. My favorite mathematician, Scott Ferber, who's the CEO and founder of Videology. The thing I love about Scott is he had an understanding and a model and a concept for how to use data to optimize advertising that was very, very different. I think he's right about his thesis, which is it's not about bidding and in real time, it's about yield management, how you think about the problem in the context of yield. So how do we think about optimization of advertising in the way that UPS thinks about filling trucks or American Airlines thinks about yield management for an airplane versus auction-based dynamics. It's had a massive influence on me. So Scott Ferber is my number one favorite mathematician I've worked with of all time. Magician. Working in creative agencies, I've worked with many. My favorite is John Hegarty, who is uh, you know an all-timer. When I was running account management at BBH in New York, John was still uh, the active creative director and chairman. And so to work directly with John on campaigns and to see up close how he applies his craft. I learned so much from John in such a short period of time. He deserves the stature he has in the industry. Tim, thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. Here's three lessons I take away from this episode with Tim Castry. One, regardless of all the new digital tools we have now, the bottom line is make emotional connections with people. Two, remember that just as important as managing your team is managing yourself. And three, if your job feels glamorous, you're probably not doing it the right way. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. 
have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.